haven't met yet, my name is Bethany, and I'm one of the leaders around here. And if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. 2020, y'all, what a year, huh? Now, I know that there are many of us who would like to forget it altogether, but as the year quickly marches to an end, I'm finding that it's hard not to reflect, at least at some level, on all that we've walked through, we've endured, and really, I think, survived. COVID-19 has affected and impacted every person, every family, every government, every system, and every structure on the planet, and its reach is still unmeasured. In a recent Forbes article, psychologist John Everly, who teaches mental health and resilience at Johns Hopkins, noted that the coronavirus pandemic will be the most psychologically toxic disaster in anyone's lifetime. All right, George, strong words, but I don't know that any of us would disagree or that is yet to be seen. 2020, while layered, has been in many ways the closest thing to war that many of us, especially those of us in the West, have or may ever experience, Lord willing. We've seen incredible death, social unrest, political polarization, and the literal infrastructure and fabric of our society change as we know it. Governments have failed us, economies crashed, and leaders disappointed us, to put it lightly. All of which I think has left us at least at some level to experience that war-torn reality, the limits and failings of this world and the humans in it. This year has been, to put it lightly, disruptive, and no matter how much we wish it wasn't, life-changing. 2020 has been a tough year. And while we all know that 2021 is no cure for the ache of it all, I think it's fair to say that when the clock strikes midnight on December 31st, we'll be ready, maybe more accurately said, hoping for another year, a better year, filled with just a little more peace. Peace, for many of us, if we were honest, uh, has been hard to come by this year. Many of us have had to fight for it. We've had to work hard to find it, to sustain it, even to experience it. Between a lack of social connection and consistency to layoffs and financial stress and family tensions and that constant lurking fear of the unknown peace, this soul-at-rest feeling may be what we all end up wanting most for Christmas. Now, peace, as it's presented to us by the world, is often measured by our circumstances, by our ability to regulate or to meditate or to neutralize our emotional state of being. But I think after a year like this one, it's fair to say that that just doesn't hold up. So what is peace exactly? And what are we hoping for when that clock strikes midnight? And what does it mean to experience it? not just as an emotion, but as a lasting and true condition and posture of the heart. Today is the third Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of peace. And as John Mark mentioned last week, so much of Advent and our understanding of it is rooted around this theological principle of what scholars call the now and the not yet, that space in between. When Jesus comes into the great Christmas story, he inaugurates his kingdom, and in that, there is a realized shift in our future, in our destinies. This is life with Jesus forever. But there's also a shift in our now, in our very human and present reality. 
Our experience of the world changes when Jesus steps onto the scene. And today we're going to look at another dimension of what it is that he brings. Before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about what peace is, at least according to Jesus and according to the scriptures. Now, if you did just a quick observation, you'll notice that peace and the concept of it is actually woven all throughout the Bible. It's the undercurrent of human desire, starting on page one or page three of the scriptures. But like I mentioned earlier, the peace laid out for us in the scriptures is very different than the ones presented to us in psychology textbooks or in the latest Instagram post. Bless those people. <laughs> peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom, and in the Greek it's irene, both defined as the absence of war or conflict. And beyond that, it is completeness, it is justice, it is wholeness. It's an order that brings harmony and security and well-being, honoring the depth and the complexity of a whole person or whole circumstance. It's the place where all relationships with God and others and self and creation are well-ordered as God defined them with honor and with dignity for all. This peace is not one-dimensional in nature. It doesn't just speak to our emotional state of being, but to the entire state of our soul. Biblical Jesus peace reaches beyond, way beyond culture's definition of it and has the power, I believe, to reorder and to re-architect our lives altogether. Now, with that lens, let's look at peace in the context of Jesus coming to earth. I mean, it's Christmas, for goodness sake. We're going to be both in the Old and the New Testament today. We're going to be leaning into our now and not yet framework, and we're going to start with an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9. So look with me at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Hallelujah. For to us, a, son, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this. Now here, against a backdrop, a uh, familiar one to Israel of war and loss and darkness, we find a promise given about the coming Messiah or the king or the deliverer who would come. And we're told what he's like. You see, Israel understood and had a long history of knowing what it meant to be in a time of darkness, to feel the weight and defeat of oppression, the impact of failed governments and the effects of war, to know the deep ache for deliverance and for rescue. Even as this prophecy was being written, they were headed into exile. They were headed to live under a government that was not their own. All throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, we find Israel looking for either a priest or a king, for someone to come and to lead them, to keep them free and protected from oppressors. 
to make of them a great nation or a kingdom that would ensure prosperity, strength, and above all, peace. Which means that the promise found here is one that would ring true for them, that would touch on the ache within them, and that would cause them to ask how and when and who. This was a not yet promise, and yet it was a promise just the same. In verse 6, we read that this Messiah would be born into humanity and given to his people, and he would reign and establish a new government and a new way of living. And he would be a wonderful counselor, providing insight and provision for his people. He would be a mighty God, or in the Hebrew, he would be the Lord Almighty, Yahweh God, living with his people. He would be an everlasting father, eternally ruling, and he would be the prince of peace ensuring for his people the blessing of peace forever. This prince or ruler would be one who ushered in a kingdom void of war and conflict, who would bring wholeness and completion and restoration to the tattered parts of our world and our souls. This prophetic declaration meant that God wasn't abandoning his people to chaos but that he would now establish a new government and a new way of life that would ensure security and wholeness for all people. Now, let's take a look. We're gonna take, we're gonna move to the New Testament. I wanna take a look at another passage. So turn with me, if you will, over to Luke chapter two. We're gonna do a little Bible drilling this morning, but it's good for your spirit. Some of you look sleepy. Uh, So this is gonna be good. Luke chapter two, our famous Christmas story, and we'll pick up at verse eight. We read this, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now here in Luke 2, we find our famous Christmas story. We read that Messiah has come. And right in the middle of this messy, not what anyone would have thought, entrance into the world, we find the fulfillment of the promise that had been made back in Isaiah chapter 9. A child was born. And the angels to the shepherds in a town nearby say this, Peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. Now, this phrase can be bypassed. It sounds simple enough, but it's so much more than a lyric to an angelic song. The king, this Messiah, was now here, and peace was on earth. And that meant we could have peace with God. It meant we now had peace with each other. It meant we now had peace within. This is a message of hope for all of us. The angel's song was not some quip or simple exclamation to the shepherds. It was a declaration that through this baby, all the unwhole, broken parts of humanity and history would be restored. That this child would bring a pathway of restoration and union for all people in all things. 
that this Prince of Peace would provide more than just a, a presence just to make us feel good in a certain moment. He would bring together now all that was scattered. There would be peace between creator and creation. Peace was now more, the, more than the absence of something. It wasn't just the absence of war or conflict or darkness. It was the presence of someone. Peace, though often thought of as passive, is quite the opposite, at least as we see it in Bethlehem. Peace himself came to earth in the middle of our mess and our chaos, and he brought order. Now, we're going to look at one more passage. You're doing great. Turn over just a few chunky pages to John chapter 14. You know what I mean by chunky pages, right? Just lick a little and pull real hard. I want you to listen to these words from Jesus to his disciples as he was preparing for his imminent death. We're going to pick up at verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In this text, we find Jesus comforting his disciples with these final words. And what he says not only confirms but expands the disciples and even our understanding of what had been prophetically promised about him hundreds of years before. Messiah would not only bring peace into the world, but he would give it and ensure that we had access to it even after he had left the earth. This peace he brought was permanent. It wouldn't be as the world offered it, which is temporal and circumstantial. Instead, we read that it would be a catalyst for life in the kingdom, against fear and against darkness and against the brokenness of our souls. It would be the gravity for the followers of Jesus. It would be the firm footing when the world was falling apart, when there was a global pandemic, and it would be the ruling remedy for every troubled soul. In his final days, we find Jesus in an almost echoed refrain, mirroring the proclamations made about his coming to Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds on the day of his birth. Do not be afraid. The only command around his coming in the Christmas story, and appropriately the only final command for his disciples upon his departure. The peace found in Messiah Jesus is more than just a sensation. It's something that transcends a church experience or a spiritual moment even. It, at least as we see it in the scriptures and in the life of Jesus, is God on the move. Is God himself moving towards the chaos of our lives, the brokenness, the weakness, the frailty of who we are, not moving away from it? It's God moving towards the conflict in our world, those impossible situations, those reckless and broken souls, and bringing order to it. It is God restoring what has been lost and broken or stolen. It is God completing what is absent, the blessings that we're missing, the friendships that are not there, the relationships that are wounded or falling apart. It is God bringing wholeness where there is deficit. 
And it's not just God cleaning up the neighborhood, not coming in to, to get us sorted, to fix our hair and to, to make things look the way it should. It is God actually moving into the neighborhood and staying there. And this, that Christmas is good news. Now, maybe you're thinking, Bethany, that sounds great, but that is not how I actually feel. That's not what I've known this year. It's been hard. I've lost people. I've lost a job. I've lost friends. I've lost connection. I've lost myself. And I think it's important for us in this moment to be honest about that. We have to be. Yes, this is good news. But I think it's also true that in years like this and in others, peace can feel very far off, even unrealistic or impossible. Some of you even today are aching for the reality of peace in your life, but at the same time are already flooded with anxiety about next week and what it brings. Maybe it's the first holiday without certain loved ones. There's a frailty to that, a lack of knowledge about that. What does that mean? What does that feel like? What does that look like? Maybe it's family conflict and strain. I know nothing about that, but I've heard it's bad. So bless you. Maybe it's financial duress and uncertainty. And still, maybe it's just the wake of this year and the condition of the world as it stands. It's true that sometimes peace can feel naive, especially when it feels like the chaos outside of us is colliding with the chaos within us. But that is, in many ways, I believe, the power and beauty of Advent of this practice of watching and waiting. In Advent, we recognize that peace is more than a feeling. It's more than a temporary moment of relief. Instead, it is the practice or the discipline of continually turning our attention to and posturing our hearts towards what is available to us right now in and through Jesus. The call for the disciple of Jesus is not to simply wait for a future peace. Oh, it's coming, so I'll just wait till God brings it. I'll just endure and begrudge the weight of the world now until Jesus comes, hoping it won't be too much longer, but gosh dang, he's always late. Instead, I think the call for us in Advent is to lean into what is on offer to us. And then to be spirit-activated agents and conduits of peace ourselves. It's been said that in making peace, we find more of it. And that formula, I believe, my friends, is foolproof. I believe that even in this weird Christmas season, there is actually an invitation for us to move beyond the peacekeeping maintenance of our lives to active peacemaking to lean into the reality that Jesus is our peace, to let that actually ring true from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet and let that proclamation comfort us, yes, but also compel us towards ushering in that reality in every space, in every ache, in every person, in every circumstance we encounter. We are to be like Jesus. And even in our weakness and our weariness, we are going to have to proactively seek peace out to go headfirst into what feels like chaos, confronting what we fear, 
while at the same time holding on to the promise that he said over and over and over again to us that we do not have to be afraid. Now the question for us is what does this practically mean? Because I get it, it's a little abstract. You're like, that sounds good, but how are you gonna be tomorrow? Fair question. What does it practically mean to be a peacemaker, especially in a year like 2020? Historically and culturally speaking, peacemaking and peacekeeping have often been used as synonymous or interchangeable terms, so I want to be clear to delineate between the two in a way that I think is most significant, because I think they couldn't be more different. Simply put, peacemaking is a proactive approach to peace. You want to be a peacemaker, you are proactively approaching that, while peacekeeping is just a passive one often emphasizing on the abstinence of your presence or your thoughts or your opinions. Which means then that peacemakers will be people who make peace. Now, don't write me off quite yet. I know it sounds simple. I think that making peace, at least in this season, will require us to move towards and confront and resolve both the inner and outer conflict of our hearts and in the world around us in order to make peace. And that takes hard work. That's not comfortable, especially when we're tired. Anyone else? Yes. Yes. It takes hard work, and yet the invitation for us is to do this. This means we won't be able to avoid or numb what is hard or painful in our lives. We just don't get the luxury anymore, church. We just don't. We have to look at what's happening in us and around us all the while inviting Jesus, who we profess to believe to be our shalom, our peace, to absorb that conflict within us and to bring wholeness into every part of what's happening. It is an act of faith, but it is an act we cannot afford to avoid at this point. And listen, I don't want you to get freaked out by this, like, i got to make peace now. i got a whole busy week. i got to still buy presents. There's a lot of people. I get it. Same. No time for peace. Hello? This is not some theological rocket science that you have to do to make this happen. What I mean by making peace is to start in your prayers for next week. Actually pray towards those pockets of conflict or disruption and invite the Spirit to start His work. It starts with you going ahead and having that hard conversation and believing the best about that other specific situation It's you inviting Jesus to lead you in how to navigate the tricky emotional space you find yourself in. For some of us, it's going to mean letting go of the pain of the one who hurt us and offering love instead of hurting them back. It's going to mean talking with and to people who have disappointed you rather than talking about them to others. This is peacemaking. This is where we start. And as we do it, you can do the math we begin to be freed up ourselves. We're doing the work that sets us free. Peace has this beautiful catch and release rhythm to it. And if we're going to bring peace to the world around us, we have to first experience it and know it ourselves. Making peace will be a day-to-day decision in a pathway that is largely marked by surrender. So buckle up. Next. Peacemakers will be spirit filled people. In Galatians 5, we read that the fruit of God's spirit or his presence within us is peace, which means that the more of the spirit you have in your life, the more peace you will have. 
That's pretty good, huh? Pretty simple. It's not completely as simple as it sounds because some of you need to make a bit more room for him, myself included. We can't figure out for the life of us why we're not at peace. We've made no time for the Spirit of God to occupy and preoccupy places within us that the world has us distracted and void of him. There's an invitation to invite, to evoke more of the Spirit of God if we want the realities of peace at work inside of us. The scriptures say that the fruit of righteousness or holiness will be peace. So there's a reconciling that has to be done within us for the Holy Spirit to come and take up space within. As we cultivate holiness and the work of the Spirit in our life through the practices and through rhythms, we'll encounter more of the peace of God and in that reflect it to the world around us. Finally, peacemakers are those who will actively work towards peace. Now, this is different than making peace, trust me. It just got a little sticky when you say peace so many times. What I mean here is that peacemakers are not content to just silently move through the world with all its brokenness, injustice, and pain without moving heads, head first towards it. The work of peacemaking is the work of God. We see that in our Christmas story as it's told to us over and over again. It's God using his people to set the world to right, to care for, to believe for, to provide for those who have experienced the effects and brokenness of our world. And that maybe looks like caring for the single mom at Christmas who is struggling. It may look like the husband and father who lost his job and you coming around him and blessing him and helping provide for him. Maybe you caring for and acknowledging the hundreds of grieving families all around you in our community. There's also space in this to commit to working towards your own relational peace in life. Where do you need to actively make peace with someone else? We don't get to sit back as apprentices of Jesus and go, well, I hope it just resolves. Well, maybe they'll figure it out. I mean, they should, yeah? I mean, I would never say that, but I know that some of you do. I've talked to you. We have to actively work towards peace. If we're going to be like our rabbi, like our Messiah, we will move towards places of brokenness, not away from them. The places that need order and for God to show up. We've all been there. We need to be conduits of that peace. Peace comes to those who share it with others. And our call is to work towards it in our own lives and in the world around us. Now, by making peace, and this feels exciting to me, we actually proclaim a better way, a better way of life. Ultimately, we are preparing and pointing to the great second advent, which isn't something we talk about very often, but in the first advent, Jesus comes, but in the second, he will come again and not leave. He will be God with us. So as we become peacemakers, we point to the coming advent that is on its way. And Jesus comes to earth again and he sets everything to, to right. One day we'll experience life as it was always supposed to be. And that's our hope in this realm of peace. We'll experience life without COVID-19. Oh God, come quickly. Without death. Without divorce. Without miscommunication. Without orphans and widows and war. 
God will one day in this great second advent step back into creation and once and for all usher in his peace, his shalom, his order, not just by stopping the evil and restoring life to its great glory, but by moving into the neighborhood for good. And there will be no more tears and there will be no more pain and there will be no more sin and there will be no more evil. At Christmas, we remember that peace comes near to those who need it the most and will come again one day. If you don't know this about me, you should know I'm a huge fan of Advent. In fact, probably why we're doing Advent is because I'm a little yappy about it throughout the year. Thank you, John Mark. I grew up Baptist, so the closest thing to Advent we ever had was something called a living nativity. Now, I'm going to try to explain what that is. It's very embarrassing, but we would dress up. Mind you, it wasn't cold because it was Florida, but we would dress up like Mary, Joseph, the sheep, and the wise men, and the shepherds, and we'd stand outside for hours, which, by the way, I looked last night at my church back home, uh, still does this. They did that this this year. So exciting. Anyway, um, of course, I never got to play Mary uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, so I was like always sectioned off to the sheep or like the shepherd category would like cover your hair, you know. Um, I guess I'm still grieving. I don't know. Uh, but when I moved to Portland 13 years ago, I started doing Advent. I went to Imago Dei Church at the time. And from them, I learned what it meant to practice this tradition. It was totally new to me. I had no paradigm for it, um, but I liked it. And I think I liked it because, at least for me, it gave language to what I felt in most of my Christmas experiences. In my teenage years, we had some really hard Christmases. We really struggled a lot as a family during that time. And as a tragic romantic, I think the emotional impact on me was severe. But I do remember this, no matter how hard my Christmas was, no matter how painful, there was always this deep rush of God's presence that would flood my heart and mind on Christmas morning, always. We had to read the story. We had to. We get to read the Bible, which is a privilege, church. Um, we, we, we got to read the Bible before we opened presents. We got to open stockings first, though. Okay. So we had balance, but we would read it. And I just remember, parents, I bless you with that. That's good. Um, I just remember feeling every time this overwhelming sensation of God's love, his peace, his hope, his joy, no matter what. And I still die reading the story. The older I get, the more fragile I am. And I'm just basically weeping halfway through the story. And we read it in chunks, you know. And I'm just trying to make it through every year. Because it's so powerful for me. It's so significant for me. The Christmas story has always allowed me to catch hold of Jesus in a way that I couldn't any other time of year. In the Christmas story in Advent, we, we get the gospel, but we get it slowly and in very simple terms. The majesty somehow becomes palatable through this simple expression of a baby, and the bigness is just overwhelming enough. In Advent, we take four weeks to say that through Messiah Jesus would come true and lasting love, would come deep joy for the soul would come peace with order and justice for everything that has been misaligned in us and in our world and that we get everlasting hope for all people 
In Advent, we're forced to sit with each, to remember that even amidst the hustle and bustle of the season, those of us who are in Jesus actually have been given everything we need. Everything that we need. Even in a year like 2020, at Christmas we remember this. Church, Jesus has come to earth. Our salvation from all things is secure in him. And he is our peace today and forevermore. As we look to the year ahead, may we remember we do not have to be.